Stories carry with them great power. They can transport us into the light and into the dark. And into a place in between, a land of shadows. It is in this land where the macabre and the strange reign. With tales of terror. Tales of hope. Tales of the whimsical. And the weird. These are stories told in the shadows. And we are the Shadow Storytellers. The Christmas ghost story may have fallen out of fashion since its Victorian heyday, but we of the Shadow Storytellers quite enjoy the tradition. For years now, we have written each other our own particular takes on modern ghost stories to be read on Christmas Eve. In the spirit of the season, and for the first time ever, we'd like to share some of our favorites with you this month. From our family to yours, we hope you have a wonderful, and safe, and maybe even a little spooky, holiday season. And for our first tale of the season... What more innocent holiday mischief could there be than waiting up to see Santa Claus? Most kids who try this are rewarded with heavy eyelids, the dreamy sound of hoofbeats, and the sparkling lights of Christmas morning arriving sooner than expected. When one obsessed child genius tries it, however, he ends up inventing a means of capturing those forces at work in the universe that most fiercely defy observation, and letting something far darker into our world. Take a peek through his one-of-a-kind lens in our next story, Something Else is Coming to Town. When I was little, I liked to build things. Yeah, yeah, I know, every kid likes to build things. That doesn't exactly make me special, but I doubt there's a lot of kids out there who build things the way I did. I was soldering and modifying my own electronics by age five, and even had my first patent by age eight. Nothing you'd have ever heard of, but it got enough use to give me a nice college fund. I'd built things that nobody had ever dreamed of, and a kid my age probably shouldn't have been able to comprehend, simply because I wanted to. When I was little, they called me a prodigy. Nowadays, well, I guess they'd still call me a prodigy, but one who never fully lived up to his potential. When I was ten, after all that bad business went down the next block over, I swore off tinkering and building things completely. It baffled my parents, who saw my bright future, and probably theirs by extension, and wondered why I'd contented myself to the mediocrity of being an average overachieving genius, rather than the glory of the world-changing genius they knew I was. There were fights, some of them ugly, especially when I got older. They told me that I wasn't living up to my potential, that I could do so much more than this, and then they said that word that would normally break any defenses and change the course of any conversation. They were disappointed in me. I stuck to my guns, though. I stuck to my guns, and I did not give in to the temptations they offered me. I've never modified an electronic device or dabbled in concepts I didn't fully understand again. Now that I'm grown with a wife and kids of my own, and a damn lucrative job, I don't think they're as disappointed as they used to be. Sure, I can tell there are still times when they wish I'd become the next Steve Jobs and move them into a mansion made of solid gold, but all I have to do is send my kids their way, and they seem to forget about those dreams. Every once in a while, though, Dad will pull me aside, usually after a few drinks, and ask me about what changed, about what made me decide to give up inventing and tinkering. Since he was usually tipsy when asking, it got easy to deflect or come up with some bullshit that he wouldn't fully believe, and that would end the conversation as quickly and politely as possible. 
I couldn't tell him the truth. Not because I was afraid he wouldn't believe it, no. My dad's an open-minded guy. But because I was afraid he'd ask me to prove it to him. I have so many years of practice holding on to this secret that it shouldn't be hard for me to say no to him, but, well, he's my dad. He's getting old, already halfway to death's door, and I can't guarantee that he wouldn't find me in a moment of weakness and get me to tell him about... Well, how does one go about explaining to their dad that their life changed because of something terrible happening on Christmas? Christmas is supposed to be a time of joy and love, not what... Well, not what I saw. Not what that... thing did. If you want to know where it all began, I blame Santa. Well, Santa and my flawed understanding of the scientific method when I was five years old. By now it's probably not shocking for me to say that I was something of an unusual child. I was too smart for my own good most of the time, as the numerous playground beatings would attest, and prone to showing off. I loved being the one kid who was smarter than all the others, the kid who didn't believe in such silly notions as the Tooth Fairy or the Easter Bunny or God, because I would only believe in things I saw. Everything that actually existed had to have some fundamental reality to it, something I could see, and if I could see something, then I'd believe it. My only blind spot to this was Santa Claus, though in my defense I want to say that I had every reason to believe in him based on the evidence. I would leave out cookies and milk, and the next morning those were gone and replaced by a pile of presents under the tree. Sometimes there would be other bits of proof, like half-eaten carrots on our front porch or hoof prints in the snow. No, I never saw Santa, but I felt I had enough empirical evidence to justify his existence that I didn't need to see him to know he existed. Then, come kindergarten, I got the first real wave of kids telling me that Santa didn't exist and that it was really our parents who left all the presents beneath the tree. Now, as a good, Santa-believing child, I knew this was wrong. The kids were just lying because kids were cruel in that way, and usually hated me. But I had a plan. I'd gone so long merely believing in Santa that it was time I finally saw him. Once I saw him, I could prove it to the others and rub their snotty little noses in it. So, little five-year-old me sat on the couch next to the plate of milk and cookies waiting for Santa Claus to show up. I was certain I'd see him come down the chimney, drop off the presents, and maybe even share some milk and cookies with me. I was honestly looking forward to the chance to have a conversation with him, mostly because I was curious about how he hid so many households in one night, even accounting for the rotation of the earth. Of course, the thing I didn't take into account was that I was five years old and was about as accomplished at staying up late as any other five-year-old. One minute I was sitting on the couch, eager to catch Santa in the act. The next I was waking up on Christmas morning to an empty plate of cookies, a full tree in stocking, and a candy cane tucked into one of my cute little hands. Though the presents were great and Christmas with my parents even better, I was annoyed that I hadn't seen Santa. Now, if I'd been an ordinary five-year-old, this is where I'd have forgotten all about this and would have moved on to whatever other shiny thing the world threw my way, and that would have been that. The madness would have ended there, and nothing would have gotten out of hand. Unfortunately, I wasn't ordinary. I stewed. I focused. I planned for the next year knowing that if I could just control the variables, I'd be able to see Santa and prove I was right. So, when I was six, on Christmas I took my consciousness out of the equation and asked to borrow Dad's VHS camcorder. 
Since it was a lumbering beast he was preparing to throw away anyway, he decided to give it to me. He made a whole over-the-top ceremony out of bequeathing it to me with fake chanting and the ceremonial application of a label-maker label stating, Property of Alex Von Braun. Then, after he showed me how to mount it on the tripod and turn it off and on with the remote, I mounted it facing the fireplace. I put in a tape on Christmas Eve, hit record, and went to bed satisfied that I'd have video proof of Santa the next day. Instead of proof, all I got was a two-hour recording of the fireplace before the tape ran out. I had another year of going back to the drawing board, tinkering around and modifying the camera so I could set it to record for a good ten hours. My modifications weren't perfect, and the video quality wasn't that great, but I thought it would do. Instead, when I was seven, all I got for Christmas was a grainy ten-hour video of our fireplace. Oh, and the presents, but I couldn't really be bothered with them then. Once again, it was back to the drawing board. I knew since I didn't see any disturbance in the fireplace, but did see movement in the bottom of our stockings at the top of the camera frame as they were being filled, that Santa had come in through some means other than the chimney. So, next year I enlisted Dad's help finding the best spot for the camera to get as much of the room as possible, showing all the entrances and exits as well as the tree and the chimney. However Santa got in, I'd catch him. I beamed with pride as Dad helped me set up the camera, turning it on remotely so we wouldn't contaminate the room, knowing that I'd truly impressed him with my ingenuity and that I'd finally catch Santa. Waking up the next morning, I think I was more excited for the tape than anything under the tree. I went through all the pleasantries with my parents, of course. I opened my presents and took pictures and oohed and awed appropriately, but more than anything else, I wanted it to be over so I could watch the tape. Once I found an appropriate moment, I plugged the camera into the TV and watched it on fast forward, certain I'd see the big man in the red suit so I could rub it in all the other kids' faces. And then something curious happened. One moment the tree was empty, the next there were presents underneath it. The cookies were gone, the stockings were full, and I had no idea what had just happened. I rewound and watched it over and over, watching as the time skipped from 10.15pm to 10.27 in the blink of an eye. Somehow, Sant had gotten into our living room, sight unseen, turned off the camera, did his thing, and turned it back on. This, more than anything, almost discouraged me. I'd planned so well and set the room up so perfectly, how could I have missed Santa? How is that even possible? It took me months of theorizing, but after lots of thought, I had a pretty good theory. Santa could become invisible. I knew it wasn't part of the traditional Christmas lore that I had done extensive research on, but given the rest of Santa's seemingly superhuman abilities, I couldn't rule it out as a possibility. It was the only logical explanation for how he could have gotten into the room and turned off the camera, done what he had to do, then turned it back on without being seen. It even accounted for how nobody had ever actually seen him before, a realization that made me more than a little smug for having figured it out before anyone else. Not that Santa's invisibility actually aided me. This was the biggest hurdle to overcome, but with ten months of tinkering and planning, I knew I could make it work. I learned more about optics in this period than I think most scientists do in their lifetime, and probably discovered a few new things while I was at it. I created a new set of filters for the camera's lens that could view light spectrums that should otherwise be invisible. I tinkered and futzed and probably doubled the size of that camera that was already ungainly and huge, 
but I pushed those lenses and the electronics within the camera until they could look past the realms of what we could see. Probably what we ought to see. I was getting a visual on planes that hadn't been seen by anyone except for the craziest of the crazy, and though I knew at the time that this was something that warranted further exploration, that was for another time. After Santa. If this didn't catch Santa in the act, I wagered, I'd have to seriously reconsider my methodology. So, come Christmas Eve, I set up my camera, Dad and I turned it on remotely, and I went to bed. I woke up the next morning with a great sense of exhilaration. This was it. This was the day when I'd finally prove his existence to everyone. I opened my presents. I went through all the rituals, all the time waiting for my parents to break off and leave me alone so I could review the footage in private on our basement TV. Don't get me wrong, I did want to share this with the world, but I understood that there was every possibility that I might have failed again, and there was no way in hell I wanted that failure to be public. So, I locked myself in the basement, stretched the wires from the camera to the big, ancient TV, and I queued it up. I had an eagerness to me that could barely be restrained for the way I was practically dancing in front of the TV. Once I'd rewound the tape completely, I fast-forwarded to about 10 p.m., since last year Santa had come right around this time, and I doubted he'd change up his schedule very much being that he was, you know, Santa. Though I should have been impatient as I watched this tape for how many years I'd waited for this moment, I wasn't. I had an odd calm, if I'm going to be honest. I'd waited so long, come so far, that this was a moment I knew I wanted to savor. That my filters had done an amazing job at capturing everything unseen in my living room certainly helped, too. I knew my eyes could only comprehend so much of what was going on, since I was only physically capable of perceiving so much of the light spectrum, but the way the world seemed so much more vibrant was almost hypnotic. More than that, it felt like I was seeing more than just my living room, capturing, well, about four or five of my living room all laid over one another. It's hard to explain it without sounding mad, but it felt like there was just more to my living room, maybe even more to this world than I could understand. For all the color to it, it was undeniably beautiful, but there was something about it that filled me with an instinctive dread that still fills me, even as I record this. Enthusiasm won out against dread, especially as the minutes ticked closer to when Santa would arrive. Soon he'd be here, and I'd be vindicated, and the kids at school wouldn't make fun of me anymore for believing in Santa and... And there was movement, just at the edge of the screen. I leaned in closer, so close that my hair stood up from the static of the television. Santa was here. I was going to see him, and... At first, I couldn't be sure what I was seeing. It looked like a shadow of a man, which gave me some hope that Santa was just out of frame and ready to make himself known, but that hope ended soon, because it was all too clear that what I was seeing wasn't a shadow. It was too dark, and it didn't deform as it went across objects in the background. It was a living darkness, yet it almost glowed with an impossible radiance, unmistakably solid yet intangible enough to see through. I was seeing something that nobody else had ever seen, and for all the pride I should have had, that dread only grew as I got a better look at it. I continued thinking of it as a man, though only for lack of any better word for something so profoundly alien. It was tall, maybe seven and a half feet or so, but slender, with spindly arms that ended in long, two-fingered hands that curled up in palms that almost touched the floor, 
and feet that narrowed to what might as well have been hooves. The muted, inverted triangle of its head gave a hint that it might have had bat-like ears, but it was its eyes that held me. Well, rather its absence of eyes. Its eyes were just voids in the shadow, like holes cut in a piece of paper and held up to the light, casting their glow upon the ground. Though I could see through this man's body with some effort, I could see everything behind the three holes where its eyes should have been just fine. It was, without question, the world's most horrible shadow puppet, and I was its only audience. My mind reeled with questions while I couldn't pull my eyes away from the screen. What was it? What was it doing in our house? Was this something that was always here, unseen and unnoticed by our limited perception? Or was this something else? Something born of, or attracted to my camera? Worst of all, might it be Santa Claus? No. No, it, it couldn't be Santa Claus. This much I knew with absolute certainty. But beyond that, I could not say with any certainty what it was. I watched with equal parts fascination and horror as it walked through the living room, its legs passing through the coffee table as harmlessly as smoke. It didn't seem to notice anything in the room, didn't seem to have any real concern or consideration. I realized right then and there that what I'd done was capture something outside of normal perception merely as it was walking from place to place. Though I couldn't help but feel fear and menace when looking at it, I realized that what I'd caught, unnatural as it felt, was certainly nothing more than an undocumented natural phenomenon. I paused the tape at the moment I got the fullest view of the thing so I could get a good look at it. My understanding of classification and taxonomy was limited, but I knew that I'd have to study up on it if I meant to understand just what I was seeing here. I was an explorer who'd discovered something new, and I was going to... It moved. Its fingers curled ever so slightly against its hand. No, it couldn't have moved. The tape was paused. Movement was an impossibility. I looked closer. It moved again, twitching, almost as a newborn animal understanding how to walk for the first time would. With aching, shuddering movement, it curled and uncurled both of its hands, turning toward me with the greatest and slowest deliberation. Those eyes, those absent eyes, stared at me, looking at me, looking into me, through me. The dread built up inside me, hot and fierce and telling me to run, demanding that I run. But I couldn't run, no, not when I was staring into the impossible, staring into the impossible as it stared back at me, fearing that if I moved... I would lose my mind, fearing that if I looked away, it would be gone, be gone because it was right behind me, ready to pounce. So I sat there in shock, my face inches away from the screen as the thing stepped toward me with slow, shuddering steps, its body rocking from side to side as it walked across the paused screen of the video, walked through the coffee table, walked in front of the lit-up Christmas tree, passed through Dad's favorite chairs across the room toward me. It was getting closer, and the closer it got, the greater my terror grew. Everything in my mind screamed at me to run, or at the very least to will this thing out of existence because of its very impossibility. I had brought it here. Surely I had to be able to do away with it. Surely. It pressed up against the glass on the inside of the television, its terrible blank face completely featureless save for those eyes staring into me somehow through their emptiness. Its long, two-fingered hands pressed against the glass. But I knew now that the way they were pointed... Those were more than fingers. They were claws. 
I could hear them scratching, squeaking against the glass, reaching for me but not quite being able to find me, much like an angry predator at the zoo. What little comfort I felt in this moment came from that very simple fact, and I was hoping that it would be enough. The glass seemed to confuse the thing, and for the first time since I'd watched it enter the screen, I felt unrestrained joy. What I'd seen was terrible, but it was still bound by the physical nature of the television. That joy evaporated as the thing angled its claws and pressed them against the glass, piercing through it as smoothly as a person putting their hand into a pool of water. The intangible claws were suddenly very tangible, dark and glistening as if made of obsidian, smooth and utterly lethal. And the stench. God, the stench. I couldn't say what it was, but it was death. Death in a world I wasn't meant to experience, that no one was meant to know. The stench was so strong it felt nearly solid, but it coated the fingers as they continued to inch toward me. Only a few inches came through the screen at first, as the thing experimented with entering our world. But soon those claws felt around, then gripped the edges of the TV as they pulled the thing closer. It was as it pressed its face against the glass, soon to press through the glass, that I was finally able to move. This creature, whatever it was, wanted me, and I didn't want it to have me. I ran for the camera on its table six feet away, grabbing wildly for the cables that stretched into the television. For the briefest moment, I felt something on my back, a faint pair of fingers perhaps grasping at the hem of my Christmas sweater, grasping but not finding purchase as I darted away. If I'd been only half a step slower, they'd have grabbed me, and what would have happened beyond that I cannot be sure, but I didn't have to find out. I grabbed the wires and yanked them forcefully from the television, hoping beyond all hope that that would break the connection I'd forged to this thing. Somehow, it did. No claws grabbed at my back, no stench filled the room, and looking back, the TV was just the TV. No more, no less. If it weren't for the pair of scratches on the back of my sweater, I'd have probably been able to write this off as a dream. In that way, I was glad for those scratches. They kept me sane, kept me grounded. They're the reason I boxed up that accursed camera and buried it in the basement, hoping I could put it behind me and forget about this whole mad episode. Would that life were so simple. Aside from the nightmares that plagued me almost every night, by the time Christmas rolled around the next year, I was fairly content that I'd put this all behind me. The thing hadn't come for me, and though I was distinctly worried about the likelihood that things like this existed in our world unseen and unknown, I was comforted by the fact that they didn't seem to be able to touch us without the aid of either my camera or a television. There was a time brief though it was, when I pondered looking into its nature, determining whether it was a ghost or an interdimensional visitor, or some other unknown concept that best existed under the cover of supernatural. But when that research didn't make the nightmares go away, I stopped giving in to that curiosity. I had caught something on tape, something beyond tape, something alive and in a strange state of existence that I wasn't ready to comprehend, and though it raised more questions than it answered, I was fine to leave certain questions unanswered. And yet as Christmas came around the corner, I couldn't ignore what had become a tradition. When Christmas Eve rolled around and Dad asked me why I hadn't set up the camera, I didn't have a good answer for him. I couldn't just tell him that I was terrified of whatever I'd trapped inside of the camera, could I? He'd want to see it and, well, even if I could turn it off in time, 
I didn't want to risk that I might not be able to. Still, I couldn't break his heart when it came to celebrating the holidays. Could I? This was a tradition now, one he seemed to look forward to almost as much as I used to. Even though I was terrified of the camera, there had to be something I could do. I first thought of lying, saying I'd lost the camera or that it was broken. But for the first, Dad would have launched a rescue mission and upended everything in the house. And for the second, there's no way he'd have believed that I left something broken. I almost considered saying I didn't believe in Santa anymore, but even I couldn't have sold that lie. No, I needed another solution. Thankfully, one was easy to come by. Even though I could still feel a dreadful energy around the camera, I mounted it on the tripod in the same spot we'd figured out last year, only this time without its battery. I rigged a light to it that would respond to the remotes Dad and I had, so that it could give the image of being turned on and off without the actual possibility of its on status changing. Whatever I'd trapped in the camera was going to stay trapped if I had anything to say about it. I just needed to come up with a strategy for what to do about it long term. Christmas Eve was a night of fitful, light sleep. The dreams had come back more fiercely, dreams of those terrible claws pouring out of the television, that ugly, rotten stench of life I wasn't meant to know. I was on edge, listening to every noise and jumping at the slightest elevation in volume. The way time passed, I knew I was getting some sleep, but it was only in half-hour, maybe hour doses, always brought back by that distinct feeling of dread. It was about 3 a.m. when I finally, truly started to drift off. Then I heard it. Breaking glass. Loud. This was it. This was the thing from the camera coming out, coming out not caring about everything I'd done to stop it and ready to find us, ready to kill us, ready to punish me for daring to look at it when I wasn't supposed to. I wasn't the only one, as I heard Dad running down the hallway no more than five minutes later. I could hear voices low and muffled a minute after that, followed by Dad's, much louder. Get the hell out of my house! I'm calling the police! More muffled voices, more cursing, more Dad yelling. Then silence. Mom crying. Both of them coming in to check on me to see that everything was all right. The cops coming within 15 minutes, talking to all of us, even though Dad was the only one who truly saw anything. He gave them the vague description of the two masked burglars he'd seen robbing our living room and of what he knew to be in the presents that were stolen. For two young men with only a five-minute window, they'd made off with a fair few presents and some of our electronics. When I saw that the camcorder was among the missing, I felt a great relief wash over me, the likes of which I'd never felt before. Though it was cruel to think it, I was secretly glad that the camera, and whatever else was inside it, was someone else's problem. And for a while, at least, it even stayed that way. Now, the town I grew up in is famous for only three things. One, being the birthplace of a bass player from a one-hit wonder 70s funk band. Two, that time former President Ford's limo broke down outside the McDonald's. And three, the thing that happened the New Year's Eve after our house was broken into. Every town has its own controversies and dark mysteries that are gossiped about for years to come, and the thing that happened in the house the next block over from us on New Year's Eve was that. After a week had gone by with little word on the status of our stolen possessions, 
My parents were doing the best they could to move on from the trauma, while I was still secretly glad to be rid of the camcorder. Being that New Year's Eve was never really something we were all that into, it was mostly a night of enjoying our rebought Christmas presents and watching Dad hook up the new components to our home entertainment center. He tried to get me to help, but being that this was the beginning of my anti-inventor period, I declined with probably more force than I ought to have. It started a fight. Not a screaming match with thrown furniture or anything like that, but the kind of fight that many a middle-class white suburban family was good at. There were passive asides, and plenty of guilt to go around, and it may have even elevated to raised voices, if it weren't for the sirens. Now, sirens aren't exactly unheard of, even in our neighborhood, but it was a rarity for them to be quite this close. And loud. And for there to be so many. At first it was easy to write off as people partying too hard, but after a time we knew it had to be something more. Dad excused himself and walked outside, ready to check out what was going on, not coming back for nearly half an hour. When he did, there was such a look of grim amusement on his face that it was hard to truly read what he'd seen. He pulled Mom aside and told me to play with my new toys, which for me meant that something was being talked about that I wasn't supposed to hear. Most of the time this meant that I knew I had to hear about it, and that I'd conspire to find out, but still being a little raw from Christmas, I was happy to let them have their secrets. Besides, I figured, if it was that important, I'd wind up hearing about it later. I did. Considering how much it was on the news, it was hard not to. According to reports, five people had died in a bizarre suspected murder-suicide. The Welker family, two adults, two teenagers, one seven-year-old girl. The initial reports about what happened were sketchy aside from more than one news program using the phrase House of Horrors, and with the local rumor mill set on calling it a conspiracy by a satanic cult, word of mouth was hard to trust. I grew up listening to different theories, different stories, everybody having their own thing to add about a story nobody really knew the truth of, but I never got the full picture growing up. Not that I cared to, really. It was only a few years ago, watching a show on famous cold cases, that I got a real picture of what happened during the Massacre at 1231 Ridgemont, as they so luridly called it. Though motive was still unknown, each of the five Welkers had been mutilated beyond recognition. Limbs and heads removed and defiled, piled in crude shrines spread throughout the house, bodies disemboweled and partly skinned, hearts and livers ripped from the bodies and missing. Though initially viewed as a murder-suicide brought on by holiday depression, an alternate theory had been proposed that it may have been an over-the-top retaliation for some of the alleged criminal activities the teenage son and daughter were into. It was a grim scene, but since I was already moved out by this point, it was little more than a curiosity to me. An intense curiosity, no doubt, but not one I cared to put more thought into than I had to. It had been years since I'd thought about either my camcorder or the massacre at 1231 Ridgemont by the time I visited my folks this past year. I brought my wife and our kids to enjoy Christmas as a family, and despite all of its stress, we had a pretty good holiday. It was after dinner when Dad, a couple too many glasses of hard eggnog in, pulled me aside saying he had something to show me in the attic. You remember when the cops interviewed me after that mess at Ridgemont? Dad asked as he pulled down the ladder. I studied the ladder as he climbed up. Of course. They interviewed everyone they found outside the scene, right? Well... Yes and no, Dad admitted. I climbed up after him. Why yes and no? 
he replied. They interviewed everyone they found at the scene once, probably some of that whole killer always returns to the scene of the crime BS, but I never told you they interviewed me five separate times, did I? No, I said, concerned. Dad laughed. It was no big deal, just the cops crossing all their T's and dotting all their I's, but I was an honest-to-God murder suspect in the murder of the Welkers. I was one of something like 50 folks they were looking into, so I was never really a serious suspect, but it gave me a good look at what was going on. What was going on? I asked, deeply curious of this unseen chapter of my childhood. Uh, let me see where I put it, Dad said, sorting through one of the many cardboard boxes that made up our attic. The attic had been a maze when I was a kid, and the years hadn't helped it one bit. That Dad seemed to know where everything was was a minor miracle, and for a moment or two I was certain he wasn't going to find what he was looking for. Then there was that eureka moment where he exclaimed one of those words between words that drunk people are truly accomplished at saying, and he found the box. It was about this, Dad said, opening the box. Peering inside it was a blast from the past, albeit a grim one. Inside the cardboard box was a collection of wrapped Christmas presents, many of them with ancient, faded, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles wrapping paper I remembered so fondly from when I was a kid. Each of them was still wrapped in a plastic evidence bag, and for the briefest of moments I had a flash of dread, an almost certain expectation that there would be blood on them, but they were clean. Just old. I know you don't remember the Welkers very well, but their teens were a couple of shit stains of the highest order. Parents excused their bad behavior and let them get away with everything shy of murder, I'd imagine. And if that little girl of theirs, rest her soul, had aged up, no doubt she'd have been the same. Turns out the Welker teens got their kicks breaking into folks' houses and robbing them on Christmas Eve, going full-on Grinch. Not even needing the money, just taking stuff for shits and giggles, Dad said. I sorted through the packages, enthralled at this view into the worst Christmas from my memory. I asked, they were the ones who broke into our house? They were the ones who robbed us? Yep, Dad said. Cops held on to our stuff because it might have been evidence of what happened, but I got to know the detective over the years, and since the case is as cold as a case can get, he released the stuff to me just a few months ago. Said he felt bad about it, but if you want the truth, I think he was glad to be rid of it. Can't imagine why. As I got to the bottom of the box, I realized I could imagine why. I could imagine why very clearly, because it took everything I had not to scream when I saw the words Property of Alex Von Braun staring up at me from the remnants of my old, modified camcorder. Dad droned on, and eventually he left to get more eggnog, but what he said was a mystery to me as I sat enthralled in the presence of my old camcorder again. Somehow, some way, it had come back to me. It had been a long time since it had fled, and the way the camera was falling apart, I knew it wasn't quite the prison it used to be. I could feel that dread, that inherent, invisible wrongness with greater strength than I ever had before. Whatever I'd seen, whatever I'd captured, it's still in there. So there you have it. I'm now stuck with an ancient camcorder that's haunted by, well, some unidentified thing that I brought into this world. I brought it here, I captured it, I pissed it off, and it killed the Welker family of 1231 Ridgemont. The dread around the camcorder feels stronger every day, and I know it's only a short matter of time before it won't be able to safely hold the creature any longer. 
I want to say that I'll be ready for it when it comes, but that would be a lie. Still, I'm a smart guy. I may not have been able to catch Santa like I wanted to, but give me enough time and the right tools, and I can figure something out. I'll fix this. I'll make it go away. I'll beat this. Right? Something Else is Coming to Town was written and performed by Matt Carter. Narration was provided by Fiona J.R. Tichenow. This episode was edited by Matt Carter and Fiona J.R. Tichenow. The Shadow Storyteller's holiday theme, written and arranged by Dennis Tichenow. The Shadow Storyteller's artwork by Kristen McQuiggan of Drop Dead Designs. Special thanks to Lisa Onzo and Greg Bowles for the use of their guest room in this recording. For more information on The Shadow Storytellers podcast and our other fiction works, please visit our website at theshadowstorytellers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe for more information on upcoming episodes. We hope you had fun, have some truly happy holidays, and we'll see you again soon.